Good morning and welcome. What a beautiful Lord's Day. A little nippy out there, but it's about time for winter, so uh, so glad you are here today. Uh, it's good to see some, some first-time guests, some uh, very uh, long-timers a long time ago. Glad to have you back. And uh, just great to have all of you here today. If you're visiting with us for the first time today, we want you to know that we have been captivated by Christ. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have seen and we cannot unsee the glory of God given to us, displayed for us in the grace of God that's been given to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we exist as a church to spread that enjoyment we have of the beauty of Jesus with our world we pray that today you'd see his beauty and that you would be captivated by him as well. As we start our service this morning, we want to just take a moment to thank our veterans. Uh, if you are a veteran, please stand and let us just honor you and thank you for your service to our country. Amen. Amen. We appreciate each and every one. I want to give a quick thank you also to our Foreign Missions Committee and our church as a whole for taking the initiative and in sending four of our youth, our teenagers, to Global Frontier Missions yesterday uh, down in Clarkston, Georgia, for a one-day mission tour. They were exposed to uh, other cultures and religions and got to see some of the lostness of the world, the, the need for Christ uh, around the world. Um, as they visited the Hindu temple, but they were, we were only about an hour and a half away and uh, just learned a lot about the state of the world, where, uh, where we are in terms of fulfilling the Great Commission and how far we have to go. And so what a great time that was with some of our young ladies yesterday. I want to invite you to stand with me as we read from Revelation 1, verse 9. You know, sometimes we think our children aren't paying attention um, I got a uh, report this last week. Um, if, you, if you're here for the first time, we're in a series going through the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And the passage we're about to read, we've read at the beginning of every one of the services where we've been dealing with those letters. And one of our uh, young ladies uh, looked up last week as I began to read and said to her dad, hasn't he read that three times already? <laughs> and the good news is is that she recognized that. It was actually six so far, so this is number seven. Uh, and I don't know if it's anything like the marching around Joshua's walls, but maybe the seventh time some walls will fall and God will send revival. So here we go, Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus, this Jesus, has a message for his church. In this case, the seven churches of Asia Minor, and we'll be looking at the last of those messages today. But he has a message for us, and he's had, he's had something to say to us each of these weeks as we work through. Uh, I find it interesting there, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. May we now, as we enter into worship, be in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Amen? May we be sensitive to his Spirit. Aren't you glad that you know Christ today? that you can call this one your Lord and Savior, uh, if you know him. We want to pray for our witness to our neighbors and to the nations. We want to pray for a number of other folks that are grieving and in and, and need of healing today. So join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you, realizing just afresh how awesome and mighty and full of glory and power, how righteous and holy you are. And yet, you reach down and say, fear not, because you have become for us all that we need for life, for eternal life, for forgiveness, for redemption. You are our righteousness. You died for our sins, and you rose again, and you live forevermore as Lord of all. And so we just want to stop and see you for who you are. And as we pray, God, we pray that you would open hearts, the hearts of our neighbors. We pray you'd open our mouths to tell them about our beautiful Savior. And God, how we pray you'd raise up many, even some from this place, to take the gospel to the unreached of the world, those who have yet to hear the name of Jesus. Today we pray for uh, comfort, Lord, for the family of Chris Jones. We continue to pray for Judy Williams and Ray Thompson, Vicki White and Lana Weberg, Larry Colson and Sophia Deerwent, Nancy Mosher and Jose Manuel. Today we pray for Carol Davis and Sam Port, as well as Denise Key and Donald Sams. God, you know each and every situation. We lift each of these up to you as, as the God of all comfort, as well as the great physician. We pray for your name's sake and your glory. You would bring even miraculous healing in some of these situations that Christ may be praised in those places. Father, I thank you for each person here today. I thank you now for the opportunity to join the angels of heaven as they celebrate the salvation even just this week, in the last week or two here, uh, of a young lady as we join in that celebration uh, and get to witness her baptism today. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You may remain standing. We're going to sing one song together, and then we're going to enjoy uh, a baptism together. Let's sing together. We're going to do This is Amazing Grace. And uh, Chad, you can read that one verse every week if you want to. It's talking <laughs> about the power in hair as white as snow. It's not talking about me, but it's okay <laughs> if you keep reading <laughs> Sin and darkness, whose love is mighty and 
Y'all can be seated as Pastor Trey comes. Good morning. Isn't it wonderful to be back in the tank this morning? Do you ever really get tired of seeing people be baptized? Is that something you want to see stop? I hope we're here again next week. I think it's wonderful. Amen? We're here today because our friend Emma Cagle, and many of you know her and love her, she's 13 years old. About a year ago, she accepted Christ. And uh, she's going to follow through with baptism today, Lord willing. And uh, so we want to invite her down at this time, and, and uh, y'all just give her some support and some love as she comes. Emma, tell them what happened to you. I got saved. Amen. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I know we're both thankful that uh, there's a little, it's warm this week, right? Last week was bone cold. <laughs> this week we're doing, are you ready? Yes. Okay. You want to be baptized today? Yes. Praise the Lord. All right. Turn that away. Get set. All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Kind, gracious, heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this, our sister Emma, who's come to follow in baptism. Follow in your example, Lord, in the example and the symbol of just the death, burial, and resurrection that we can have when we trust in you. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of life. And we thank you for her decision to follow through with this. We pray that as she makes her first steps out of this pool, that she'll feel refreshed Go even deeper in her faith like never before. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so uh, we'll go ahead and get dried off and back to y'all. Thank you. And thank you to Adam Pulliam, the man in the ceiling. Stand again, if you will, and we'll sing uh, Waymaker as Jason leads us in that. I think we can do this every week. Thank you. 
maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are.
And indeed, this morning, Lord, we have no other power in which to stand, no other king and master before whom to bow than Christ and Christ alone. Lord, thank you for who you are. We boast only in Christ and him crucified and risen again. Lord, we know that it is only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we can be made righteous in the sight of God, sinners though we are. It is only through Christ that we can become your adopted children and become forever sons and daughters of the living God. It is only through the finished work of Christ and his ongoing work and power in our lives that we can overcome not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin in our daily lives. Lord Jesus, you alone are the way maker. You're the only Savior. You alone keep all of your promises and never fail. You alone are always faithful. You alone are a miracle worker. And I thank you today, Father, that if you, through your Son, can bring us salvation as a gift freely given, if you can indwell us by your Spirit and change our lives and make us little by little more and more like Christ, then you can handle whatever it may be today. God, I pray for those in the room who need a miracle from you. Even in accord with your will, something that they're, they're not just they're not, not wanting some kind of genie in the bottle deal from God, but they're wanting your will, God. And they can't make it happen. Lord, I pray that you would work and by the power of the resurrection change hearts, change circumstances, change lives and in it all display your power and your glory that all involved may see and know and worship Jesus as the only one who is worthy of worship. May idols be torn down today and may Christ be restored to his proper place in our hearts. And I pray that for each and every one of us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. And for your precious word and how you speak so clearly to us as your church. Be our teacher. Now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We we'll dismissed to Children's Church and as... They're making their way out. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, in just a few minutes, we'll be reading from verses 14 to 22. Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. As we've said more than once in our series through the letters to the seven churches from Revelations 2 and 3, every Sunday... In church buildings across the country and around the world, there are three 
completely different congregations that gather in each of those buildings. There is the church that the members think they are. And then there is the church that the community thinks we are. But most importantly, by far, there's the church that Jesus Christ himself knows us to be. The same is true for every congregation around the country and the world. You know, most of the time, as churches, we function on the level of what we perceive ourselves to be and the other level of who the community thinks us to be. But the series we're wrapping up this morning from Revelation 2 and 3 has brought us face-to-face with Jesus Christ, our Lord Himself, who is dealing with the realities that are often found under the surface, out of plain view, in the life of every local church. We've been in the series entitled, The Searching Eyes of Our Savior, because that's what these letters are about. It's about that one of whom we read earlier, who, who, yes, Joe, whose hair is white like snow, but whose eyes are like flames of fire. They're like lasers, and they pierce. They can see everything about all of us and us as a church and every local church. And we've been working our way through. We, we, for the most part, stayed in order. We skipped over Smyrna early on, which had been church number two. Came back to that last week so that we could pray for the, along with so many around the, the world for uh, the persecuted church on the International Day uh, of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. But this morning we come to the end of the mail route. And the last letter is being delivered to the last church on the circuit. We come to the church at Laodicea this morning, and what we find in the title of this morning's message is a normal, in quotes, and nauseating church. A normal and nauseating church. Here's the truth I want you to take home from the passage we're about to read. Here's the summary of Revelation 3, 14 to 22. Jesus graciously holds out hope for a self-deceived, worldly, and thus useless church if its people will repent and open the door to true fellowship with Him. This is an amazing passage. And I just, I just came to appreciate it more this week as I studied through. Jesus, even for a normal and nauseating church, graciously holds out hope even as they're self-deceived, worldly, and, and thus useless, if only they will repent and open the door to true fellowship with Him. Revelation 3, verse 14. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. 
I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A normal and nauseating church. A little bit about the city of Laodicea. Laodicea was extraordinarily wealthy. Years before this, it had been burned to the ground and had then been rebuilt from scratch by one of the wealthiest families in all of the Roman Empire, the Zenonads. Aren't you thankful that's not your last name? Think today of Dubai. It's a new city built from scratch with a sudden influx of money. It was a very wealthy, wealthy city. Secondly, it was an important textile and clothing center. There in Laodicea, they produced this fine black wool that came from a rare breed of sheep that lived in the mountains surrounding Laodicea. In short, the rich shopped here. Everybody wanted a Laodicean sweater. It was all the rage, and people came from miles to to buy their clothing. Finally, Laodicea was the medical center of the Roman Empire. These mountains nearby Laodicea contained a lot of hot mineral springs. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Which were thought to have healing qualities, and so Laodicea became a medical center. And in fact, a number of legitimate medical cures were developed there. They were wealthy. They were a clothing center. They were a medical center for the Roman Empire. All kinds of amazing things happened in this city. Sounds a whole lot like America, doesn't it? Let's just go ahead and get this out of the way. No doubt the situation at Laodicea is the closest to our cultural moment. It's the closest to the church in America today. Even as Luke 18, verse 24, says, Jesus speaking, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. As we go through this passage, and as we read through it, you've already heard, there is no commendation for the church at Laodicea. Jesus doesn't, as he often does in in these seven different letters, he doesn't commend the church for anything. He doesn't encourage the church about anything in their corporate life together. But I want you to notice 
as we move through the passage, I want you to see it. There is extra pleading and encouragement to repent that we don't find in the other letters as well. Also, what you won't find in this letter, Jesus doesn't, as we would expect him to do of a nauseating church, hello, he doesn't give an ultimatum here. As he did to Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. That is, he doesn't say, as he did to all those other churches, if you don't repent, I'm going to, in one form or the other, swiftly and decisively judge and or destroy you. doesn't say that here. A normal and nauseating church, Jesus graciously holds out hope for a self-deceived, worldly, and thus useless church if its people will repent and open the door to true fellowship with Him. Let's break it down. First of all, in verse 14, the confrontation of Christ. We've seen this in every letter. Jesus says, I'm, I'm fixing to tell you some stuff, church at wherever, but first I want you to know who I am. I want to remind you who I am. I want to introduce myself, reintroduce myself to you in a particular way. I want you to be thinking about me in a specific way as you hear the words that I have to say to you. So how is it that Jesus wanted the Laodiceans to be thinking of him as he communicates his message to them? Verse 14 tells us, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, Jesus says, This is who I am. Think of me this way as you read the rest of my letter. The words, these are the words of me, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. G.K. Bill says this about this introduction. Christ identifies himself to the Laodiceans as the amen, the faithful and true witness precisely because he is beginning to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah's new creation prophecy in Isaiah 65, verses 16 and 17. And this quality of being a faithful witness is what was so woefully lacking in the church at Laodicea. Not only that, the church at Laodicea needs his resurrection power as the firstborn of the new creation. For they're spiritually dead and they need to be resurrected, which will be the key to an effective witness in their pagan culture in the future. The confrontation of Christ. Jesus is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. The Laodiceans were going to see it. They weren't being faithful and true to Jesus. Anything but. He is the beginning of God's creation, God's new creation. You know, Paul tells us that in Christ we are what? New what? Creatures. We're part of the new creation. Except Laodicea didn't, the church there, they didn't look new at all. They looked Normal. Just like everybody else. And that was the problem. Jesus said, you need to realize who I am. This is, it, it's me you're supposed to look like. And so hear my message. The confrontation of Christ. Secondly, notice with me there, in verses 15 to 17, the criticism of Christ. He just goes right to it. 
He says, I know your works. Make no mistake, we've seen it time and time and time again. You can't hide anything from Jesus. We can't hide anything from Jesus. He knows. What does he know? Yes, that too. He knows it all. And he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. I'll spit you out of my mouth. Some translations even say, I will vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I've prospered. And I need nothing. Jesus says, not realizing. That's what you say, but you don't realize you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The criticism of Christ, his criticism about the church at Laodicea, first of all, is that they're normal. They are spiritually indistinct and useless. You say, where does he say they're normal? Where where does he say they're spiritually indistinct and useless? Well, let me tell you a little bit about what's going on there in Laodicea. About six miles to the southeast of the city of Laodicea, the, the mountainous region of Hierapolis contained, remember, those hot mineral springs that were believed to have healing qualities. And about six miles to the northwest of Laodicea were the mountains of Colossae, out of which flowed the streams of ice-cold water that came from melting snow. But both sources were six miles away. Both flowed to Laodicea and and met in Laodicea. But the problem was, by the time the water from both sources got to Laodicea, it had lost its temperature. Laodicea had a water supply problem. Because the water, by the time it got to them, was, I bet you can guess, (laughs) lukewarm. And so in living color, there's an illustration in their city. And Jesus said, that's you. You're just normal. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're just lukewarm. The water was tepid. It was unclean. In large part, it was undrinkable. It was the kind of water that just makes you sick. This is the image Jesus uses to describe the believers at Laodicea. You are lukewarm, he says. You're characterized by neither healing hot water nor refreshing cold water. You're neither one, you're like neither one. There is nothing distinctive about you. Jesus says, church at Laodicea, as I look at you, as I know who you are, you feel just like the environment around you. You claim to flow or originate from me, but you look more like your environment than me. We would say it this way, they were worldly. The church wasn't affecting the world with hot healing water. It wasn't refreshing the world with ice-cold water. 
It had just become like the world and lukewarm. You know, in 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, it says this. John commands us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love the world and God at the same time. For all that is in the world, what does that mean when we talk about the world? What does it mean when we say we're, a church is worldly or I'm worldly? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, all of those things, that's what worldliness means, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, with all that, along with all that stuff, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. One commentator says, this sickness is especially hard to detect because the church appears to be numerically healthy and self-sufficient. Plenty of people, plenty of money in the bank, everything's good. But with, with respect to the gospel and the kingdom mission, it is wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You see, the church at Laodicea had begun to believe the press of the, of the city of Laodicea. They were rich and knew it. They didn't need anybody and knew it. The story's told after that earthquake, the Roman Empire offered to give them government funding. Now, stay with me on this. This may have never happened in human history except in Laodicea. Offered government funding to help them rebuild the city. You know what Laodicea said? We don't need your money. Say what? That's how rich they were. Like to rebuild the city? No big deal. Now I'll give that to somebody that needs it. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't need it. And the church had begun to imbibe that same spirit. Jesus said, you say you're rich. You have no need of anything. But in reality, with respect to the kingdom, to the gospel, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You see, to be spiritually healthy, the picture, the image, the, the figure of speech being used here, the, the, to be spiritually healthy is to be either cold, which has some good, or hot. Distinct. Useful, clear witnesses for the kingdom as a vessel of the gospel. But they were spiritually sick. They were lukewarm. They were not at all distinct in the world. They had no refreshing power of the gospel about them like cold water. They had no healing capacity from the gospel like Hot mineral spring water. We're just there. They were too normal. They were worldly. They had become no different from those who don't even pretend to follow Jesus. There's a normal church. It's normal. I mean, don't you just want to be normal? Right? Don't you just want to be like, I mean, just, just raise your hand, just on, 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 just on a gut reaction level. I mean, who wants to be weird? 
Yeah. I mean, if you want to be weird, it's because of the Spirit of God. But, but nobody wants to be weird. You've never wanted to be weird. And then some of us have always been weird and never wanted to be weird. But nobody wants to be weird. They didn't want to be weird to the point of being completely normal. Being no different than the wealthy society all around them. Jesus, listen, listen, hear what I'm saying. This is not Chad interpreting this church. Jesus is looking with those blazing eyes. He sees their hearts and he said, you are no different. You're lukewarm. You're just normal. But that's not who I am. But further, you're nauseating. I will spit you out of my mouth because you are lukewarm. I'll spit you out of my mouth. You know, there's nothing like a cup of hot coffee first thing in the morning. Can I get an amen? But, I mean, I want it hot. It don't need to be boiling. I mean, I don't want it to burn the hair off my tongue. I don't want it to, you know just scald my lips, but it's got to be hot, right? If you've been outside working, there is nothing as refreshing as a glass of ice cold water, or better yet, if, you, if you've got it, sweet tea, ice cold. Nothing more refreshing. But you know, if Trey and I are here at the office during the week, we make a pot of coffee, and I get a cup, and I go to the office, and I get studying or sending emails, making phone calls, whatever. And two hours later, I pick that cup of coffee up. Guess what? Yeah. And sometimes I forget because I, you know, I've got a kind of one-track mind, and I'll, 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 I'll take a big slug of that stuff, and man, it just don't taste the same. Jesus said, because you're lukewarm, you're nauseating. And I will spit you out of my mouth. Marshall Seagal says, the harsh reality for any of us who become lukewarm, however, is that Jesus does not coddle our indifference. He doesn't coddle our preoccupation with lesser things, our subtle captivity to worldliness. He does not sympathize with our waywardness. Jesus despises spiritual ambivalence. He despises it. And what Jesus is saying here is if we won't distinctly follow Jesus, if we won't be cold water to refresh the world, if we won't be hot water to heal the world, if we won't distinctly follow Jesus so that it's clear in both our behavior and in our bold witness that we love Jesus, then Jesus will spit us out of his mouth. If we won't live faithful to him as aliens and strangers in this world, as ambassadors of his kingdom, then hear me, he will not identify with us on judgment day, and he will spit us out of his mouth, perhaps even before that final day comes. The criticism of Christ. But notice, 
He's not done. And this is astounding. In verse 18, we have something we don't have in other places. In other letters. The counsel of Christ. Look at verse 18. I counsel you. I'm not just going to tell you, you nauseate me, you're normal, get right, be done. I'm not just going to stop there. I'm going to plead with you for a while. And he begins in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You think you're rich? You think you're all that? You think you're clothed beautifully in your black wool? You, you think you can see? You're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. But I'll fix all that. And my counsel to you is that you need some real, eternal gold that only the spiritually poor can buy from me. You say, what? (laughs) Do what? Jesus tells the church, tells us, tells Laodicea, you need some real, eternal gold that only the spiritually poor can buy from me. That is, you need grace and mercy that can only be received by simple faith in me. You know, you, you know all that we bring to salvation is nothing. All that we bring to salvation is need. And we just take what the Savior gives. That's what he's saying here. It reminds me of Isaiah 55, verses 1 and, through, 1 and, 1 and 2, when he's telling poor people there in, in Revelation 3 to buy gold from him. It reminds me of Isaiah 55, and I believe he had it in mind when he wrote this, when, when Jesus gave this, this <coughs> message, where he says, Come, God says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Is he talking about food? Is he talking about wine? Is he talking about real milk? No. He said, here's what you need. You need my grace. You need the free lunch of salvation given through Jesus Christ. And here's how you get it. You come and buy wine and milk without cost. You can't pay for this. You come get the free lunch of grace. You come trust Jesus. And what I give you, 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 there's no real purchase. I give you all the wine, all the milk, all the the good nourishing food of, of the grace of God in Jesus that you can need. I give you everything, Paul says, that you need. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And I'll continue to give you everything that you need for life and godliness. Peter tells us, I'll give it to you. All you got to come and do is say, I have nothing and I can pay nothing. And, but I want what you've got, God. And God says, here is your eternal free lunch of salvation. If you'll take that free lunch of grace, then you can be truly rich. And you can get from me not white wool clothes, or black wool clothes, excuse me, like the sheep of that area, but white clothes of my righteousness. 
to cover you. And the healing salve of my spirit to heal your heart's eyes so that you can really see, that you can clearly see truth and the spiritual realities of my kingdom both in this world and in eternity to come. Jesus says, I counsel you to come to me for everything you need to, 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 to be fixed, to be healed, to be corrected, to become in reality spiritually what you think you are. I'll heal your self-deceived, self-satisfied hearts if you'll let me. If you'll let me. In verse 19, he moves on to the correction of Christ. Verse 19 says, those whom I love, Jesus speaking, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. That's the bottom line fix. Be zealous and repent. Now, this is where we expect him to say, repent or else. Like he's done with all the other, several of the other churches. Repent or else. I will come and destroy you. I'll come and remove your lampstand, Ephesus, or make war against you with the sword of my mouth, Pergamum, or throw you on a sickbed and into great tribulation and kill your children, Thyatira, or come like a thief and tear down your church, Sardis. But of the nauseating church, he doesn't say that. Rather, he affirms his love for this church. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. He affirms his love for this church, and he says it is love that drives all of this. That drives his reproof, that drives his discipline. And it is this love of Jesus for his church that should motivate their repentance. For some reason, we don't like the word repentance, much less the act of repentance. For some reason, our knee-jerk is to avoid that. But understand the picture of repentance in Scripture is given by Jesus himself. I love you so. Be zealous and repent. You're not coming back to someone who hates you, who wants to, who's got it out for you. Who wants to crack the whip on you? You're coming back to the one who loved you so much that he died for you. And he still loves you today. Even if you nauseate him. That's possible. In the heart of Jesus. The reality that even though we may be living self-deceived and worldly and spiritually useless, lukewarm lives at the moment, The reality that Jesus loves us deeply and is calling us back to him is just amazing. And it should move us to repent. I love those whom I discipline. The fact that you're being rebuked as normal and nauseating church at Laodicea, you need to be encouraged. Those are the kinds, when you hear those kinds of words, there's love behind that. So be zealous, get on it, and repent. And he's still not done. Verse 20 makes this even more clear as we see the persistent beauty of Jesus' love. Look at verse 20. 
the comfort of Christ. We've heard the counsel of Christ. The comfort of Christ. We heard his counsel. We, we saw his way of correction. We're simple repentance. Back, turning back to the one who loves you. But, but he goes on. The comfort. Verse 20. Behold. Look. Don't miss this. He says. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. That's just not what you expect when Jesus starts talking about a church that nauseates him, is it? When you look back and see what he said to some of these other churches, this is not what you expect. Jesus says, unlike some of the other churches, I'm not coming soon to your church. I'm already there right now, but I'm on the wrong side of the door. I'm standing outside your church door, and I'm patiently knocking. Catch it. Jesus is not inside the church at Laodicea. He's outside. He's not in the gathering among his people. He's outside the door knocking to get into his own house. Perhaps the church at Laodicea doesn't even know he's left the building and been locked out. What's for sure is that the church was not going out looking for Jesus because they realized he was missing. He came to them. And he's gently and tenderly and yet persistently knocking at their door, wanting to come in and enjoy intimate fellowship with them. Again, we've not seen this level of pleading, persistent pleading, deep desire for fellowship. We've not seen that in any of the other letters. What a Savior, amen? And again, if we're closest to the church at Laodicea, I don't know. I'd say that's true across the nation. I'm not, I'm not going to pretend to be Jesus and know where we as a church are. But if, if, that's, if this is true, man, what, a, what an encouragement. What a gracious Savior. I mean, you know what I do with stuff that nauseates me? I just go ahead and puke. All right? And you know what I do with that? Yeah. I mean, it... How? What kind, of, what kind of love is this? Who is this Jesus? Now, this verse is often used in evangelistic appeals, and I'm just going to go ahead and say that's a fine application of this verse. It's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But in the context, do you see it in the context? Have you ever seen it before in the context? In the context, Jesus is knocking on the door of the hearts of his worldly, lukewarm church. And he wants to come in and restore a relationship and fellowship between us that will make, him, make us distinct and useful and powerful witnesses in our world again. That's what he wants. He wants a restored relationship with his own people. 
We see Jesus graciously holds out hope for a self-deceived, worldly, and thus useless church if its people will repent and open the door to true fellowship with Him. Finally, this morning in verses 21 and 22, notice the conqueror's reward from Christ. You've seen this in every one of them. He tells us what the conqueror gets and, 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 and what the, who the conqueror is. It's, it's, it's the believers who will hear the warning, repent, and get back right with Jesus. Those are the ones who conquer. And so here's what he said in verse 21. The one who conquers... That is the one who suddenly is no longer lukewarm, normal, and nauseating, but either cold or hot, distinct in the world. Clearly on Jesus' side. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's so amazing. You're so normal, you make me sick to my stomach. But I love you. And I'm pleading with you. I'm knocking. I won't restore fellowship with you. And if you, even though right now you're, you're nauseating in your worldliness, if you will repent, not only will we have restored fellowship, I'll come in and eat with you, you'll eat with me, we'll have that intimacy, that fellowship. Check it out. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne all the way to the top by the grace of God. It's not too late. The church at Laodicea can still, in the moment that they're reading this letter, they can still conquer their useless normalcy, their lukewarmness, they can still repent and return to Jesus, and if they will, they will reign with Him forever. The question is, will we listen? Will we hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, and will we, will I, will you, hear what the Spirit is saying to this church as He speaks to you and to me as members thereof? You see, Jesus graciously holds out hope for a self-deceived, worldly, and thus useless church if its people will repent and open the door to true fellowship with Him. I'm borrowing from Francis Chan, Craig Groeschel, and J.D. Greer. That's called the giving credit for quote. Okay, you ready? What a, Luke, this is, this is the part of the message you wish I would have skipped. What do lukewarm Christians look like? Seven things quickly. Number one, lukewarm Christians crave acceptance by people more than God. Lukewarm Christians crave acceptance by people more than God. That's the first step towards worldliness. You care more about what people think than what God thinks. Number two, they rarely share their faith. They don't have any healing or refreshment that can only come from the gospel. You, by the way, you and I don't have anything the world needs except Jesus. But they rarely share their faith. Lukewarm Christians rationalize their sin. There's a reason it's okay for them. In their case, it's just different. 
You understand. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I, mean, I, know what, I, know what the Bible, I know what the Bible says, but you just have to, it's different. It's called rationalizing your sin. As Francis Chan said, lukewarm Christians don't really want to be saved from sin, only from the penalty of their sin. Lukewarm Christians don't want rescue from the power of sin in their life. They only want to miss hell. Number four, lukewarm Christians think more about life on earth than eternity in heaven. And that changes everything. Number five, lukewarm Christians only turn to God when they need something. One way to know if you're lukewarm is look at your prayer life. What are you, what are you praying about? Do you, do, do you just pray when things get bad? Then there's a good chance the world's become your friend. And James says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Number six, everybody awake? Has anything hurt yet? If not, here you go. Lukewarm Christians give only when convenient because they find their security in money and things. You see, if heaven is real, if eternity is real, and if you're living for eternity, then you it changes everything, and it changes how you deal with your money. It changes what you think about that house. It changes what you think about that vehicle. It changes what you think about that bank account and that, that 401K. It, it changes everything. And if the money don't flow in a different direction than everybody around you, then it's changed nothing for you. Because if you want to know where your heart is, check out where your money goes. It'll show you every time. And number seven, lukewarm Christians are not much different than the world around them. Just plain and simple. That last one, you know, think about atheists in the world. Does anybody know an atheist? Many of you. You know the single biggest cause of atheism, we're told, is... It's people who claim to know God but are not distinct in any way from the world. God's on their lips, but they're lukewarm. God's on their lips, but they're normal. Just like everybody else. They go to church, and they go live their lives just like there's, no, there's nothing different. There's nothing, there's no weird factor to their lives. Just the way it is, we're called to be Weird called to be aliens and strangers in the world. This isn't home. We're called to look foreign to the people around us. Because this, this is not our home. We're from another kingdom. We dress different. We talk different. We think different. We act different. Are we lukewarm? Do we need to be zealous and repent this morning? If so, understand this. Jesus disciplines those he loves. And this morning, in love, with the cross in the background, with an empty grave in the background, he is knocking. And if anybody will open the door, he'll come in. He, he wants restored relationship with you today.
You know what will cause you to repent quicker than anything? Grace. And Jesus gave you, just gave you and me a, a beautiful dose. And if we won't turn back to him after this word from Christ, we won't turn. Jesus graciously holds out hope for a self-deceived, worldly, and thus useless church. If its people will repent and open the door to true fellowship with him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are overwhelmed by your mercy and your grace, your kindness. To those of us, to, to people like me who grow lukewarm, who lose our distinctiveness, who all too quickly become no good to you, no good for the cause of the gospel. Lord, we don't want to be normal because you're worthy of more than that. We want to cease to be nauseating to you. And we want to latch on to the hope that you offer us. We want to be zealous and repent. We want to be restored. We want to open the door and let you in. We want to have the fellowship we once had with you. We want to know you and walk with you. We want to, we want to be used by you. We want to please you. We want our lives and our bold witness to point men, women, boys, and girls to you. Because Jesus, you and you alone are worthy. So draw your people back even now. Do in each heart what only you can do. And exactly what you know needs to be done in me and in each person in this room. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Respond to the Spirit of Jesus as we sing.
God's people said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated for just a few moments. First of all, Pastor Trey, will you come and present a gift to Miss Emma? Emma, this is the winning lottery ticket. I'm just playing. We've got a certificate for you, and Pastor Chad has signed it, and I've signed it, and we've even got a Bible for you, and we're just so proud of the step you've taken today, so congratulations. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Trey. 